some of you have been hurt by other believers and other family members. And you've let a root of bitterness get into your heart. And you've not forgiven the person. You've not released them from their debt. And that root of bitterness will not only destroy you, it will destroy many people. So when God remembers our sin no more, He no longer holds it against us. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 4 of our study of the book of Romans. In this chapter, which deals mainly with the subject of faith, we looked last week at the faith of the patriarch of Israel, Father Abraham. And yesterday, since verses 6 through 8 talk about the faith of King David, we moved over to 2 Samuel chapter 11, where we find the man that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, guilty of the sin of adultery and of murder. But today, as we pick up from 2 Samuel 11 verse 16, Pastor Brogy notes that Bathsheba, the woman with whom David committed adultery, was equally guilty of both the adultery and the murder of her husband Uriah. So it was as Joab kept watch in the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David's not just guilty of murder. Because of the plan he con conceived, many of Uriah's men fell. He's guilty of multiple murder. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. And he charged the messengers, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? And David was expected to ask such questions as the king. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now Joab, if you know your book of Judges, he's quoting from Judges 9, a very famous military battle that all the Israeli soldiers of that day would have read. When I was in Israel last week, I was out for a jog and I noticed all these Israeli men and women and they had the scriptures opened. And they were studying the scriptures. They did in that day and they do in this day. And they knew their Bibles and they knew this famous battle and they were to learn from it. And so when the king asks you these questions and he's so-called enraged, you tell him Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now this is just a cover-up game. And Joab knows it. He knows that this would all be faked and feigned by David, all planned. And Joab, you would have thought, would have done differently on a couple of occasions. You can read about it here in the books of Samuel. When David wants to do something wrong, Joab stands up and does what is right, and he goes against his king, but not on this occasion. So the messengers departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messengers said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, 
And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is also dead. I mean, this is a diabolical plan hatched in hell itself. I don't know what was going on in this man's mind. No doubt he rationalized. Well, I'm not actually the one drawing the sword. And men die in battle. But if he fights mightily, he can preserve his life. So if he dies, it's not my fault. Listen, you rationalize anything long enough, and it will sound true. And so this innocent, valiant, gallant man of God dies at the king's hand. Now understand, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, that was a hot-blooded sin. This is a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. You say, is this the same King David? The one who wrote the Psalms? The one whose conscience was pinged because he just cut a little bit of David's robe off? Is this the same mighty king who's known for executing justice to all? Yes, it is. His heart had become hard and calloused. And so the Bible warns us to watch over our hearts with all diligence because from it flow the springs of life. Your heart can become callous. My heart can become calloused and insensitive. And then the almost unbelievable statement. Look at verse 25. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now David's obviously glad to know that his scheme worked. And instead of making Joab feel guilty because he was guilty, he says, You know how it is, Joab. War, well, takes some, spares others. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Can you imagine David probably there at the memorial service? Maybe he even eulogized him. But as the Scripture says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. And so verse 27 says, when the time of mourning was over, David sent, and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. And so the birth of the child published the sin. And sin always brings shame, and there was shame now in this marriage. But not only was there shame, the worst thing of all was we read, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David had pleased himself, but he had displeased God Almighty. And that is the basis of Psalm 32. Let me read a few verses to you from Psalm 32 that Paul doesn't quote. Remember, Psalm 32, like Psalm 51, come after the baby is born. So for nine plus months, he doesn't deal with his sin. So he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And that's what sin does especially in the mind of a person who knows the Lord. It's devastating to you physically. And some physical problems that people have are are due to unconfessed, unrepented sin. For he says, day and night, your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Silah. It's a pause in music, but it's given there so that 
the one leading the, the song, everyone would just stop and they would think about what was just sung. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. And so God in his mercy confronts David. Please understand, David does not send for Nathan the prophet. God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And if you're a true believer, because those whom the Lord loves, who are his beloved, for whom he has a special affection, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God won't let you get away with your sin. And so neither will he let his king get away with his sin. And so look at chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought, bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Now remember, this is the shepherd boy. He knew what it was like to have a pet lamb. And the thought of what he doesn't know is a parable or an analogy of his own sin just enrages him, and he comes off the throne. He says he deserves to die, and not only does he deserve to die before he dies, he needs to make fourfold restitution. And then Nathan said to him, you, it's emphatic in the original, you, you David, are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You, and again it's emphatic, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Now it was not David's actual sword, but he wrote the order, so he was equally guilty. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Again, the whole story is a parable. It's an analogy to teach David a lesson about his own sin. God had made him wealthy. He had given him a kingdom. He had given him power. He had given him servants. He had given him not one wife, but many wives. He allowed that under the old covenant because of the hardness of man's heart. It was never God's original intention, but he allowed it, and so he inherited Saul's wives. And Uriah, he has one wife. And like the rich man, David was rich. And like the rich man that had stolen a lamb, he had stolen a woman. And like the rich man who had killed an animal, he had killed a man. And David in his own court sentenced himself to death in fourfold restitution. By the way, the fourfold restitution you can read of in the rest of Samuel. Because while God can forgive David's sin, he cannot erase the consequences. 
So David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now Paul assumes in Romans 4, go back there. You thought I forgot about it. Paul assumes in Romans 4 that you understand that that's the backdrop of Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 really reveals just how callous David's heart had become. And so Paul wants us to understand three truths. Number one, that David understood that his salvation was freely given. It was not earned. It was a gift. Now look at verse 6 of Romans 4 again. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. The righteousness that David receives, according to this verse, is apart from anything that he could do. And this is a case in point to prove it. Because David's seduction of Bathsheba that led to adultery and David's murder that followed under the old covenant were considered willful sins and there was no sacrifice available for a willful sin. David, even as the king, should have been under a pile of rocks because that's what the Old Testament law dictated. And so when David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan says to David, the Lord has also taken away your sins and you shall not die. He deserves the death penalty under the law. He was a condemned man under the law of Moses. But his salvation from his condemnation is an act of mercy and grace by God Almighty that he did not deserve. And it was on the basis of a sure and certain work that would come centuries later through Messiah one who had come from his own family. And so God in his mercy freely gives him salvation. That's point one. He understood his salvation was freely given. Point two, David understood that his sin was forever covered. Forever covered. Look now at verse seven where he quotes verse one from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered. By the way, every time you see that word blessed, it's interesting in both Testaments, it's always in the plural, meaning blessed many times over and over and over again. And in quoting this verse, he's reminding us of the blessing, of the joy, of the happiness that showers the person who's truly, legitimately been forgiven. And until you've known the grace of God, you've not known the blessing of forgiveness and the joy that it brings. Now, again, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And understand that, that David was forgiven on a basis. And the basis by which he was forgiven was the same basis that we studied last week that Abraham was forgiven by. If you remember in Acts 2, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he quotes King David and he prefaces that quote from the Old Testament by saying, David the prophet said, so from the lips of the apostle Peter, you learn that David was not only a king, but David was a prophet. You say, why is that significant? Again, because of what we've been studying in Acts chapter 10 last time. When he is in Cornelius' house, or Cornelius if you want, uh, and he is preaching the gospel to those Gentiles and all about what Messiah would do through his death and resurrection. And then he says, of him, of Christ, all the prophets... That includes David, 
All the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sin. Now, the word forgiven and forgiveness, forgiveness in Acts 10, forgiven and forgiveness in Acts 10 and Psalm 32 and in Romans 4 are a Greek word that's used in two realms, the military realm and the legal realm. In the military realm, it's used of a catapult that has a huge rock and it releases it. And so it speaks of a rock that is released. In the legal realm, the same word is used of someone whose debt is forgiven. It's no longer held against them. They are released from the debt. And David is saying, blessed over and over and over again is the person whose sin has been released, who has been forgiven. And David understood, as God promised in 2 Samuel 7, that from his loins was coming the Messiah who would ultimately die and be raised and be buried for his sin. And as a prophet, he knew that. Now, none of us deserve forgiveness. The only thing we deserve is the wrath our sin invites. But forgiveness is a great truth to wrap your heart around. In Psalm 103, years later, David will pen these words. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. He doesn't say the north from the south because that's a fixed point. You go north and then you start going south, but you go east, you go infinitely east. You go west, you go infinitely west. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed your sin and my sin from us. Isaiah the prophet is given through the lips of God Almighty a beautiful word picture of forgiveness when he says, come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be white as wool. Micah the prophet, speaking of God's salvation, says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast, you Lord, will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. God takes your sin and he puts it in the depths of the sea and he puts a sign next to it, no fishing. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of the blessings of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the Hebrews quotes that text of scripture. And he says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What does that mean? God will remember our lawless deeds no more. Does that mean God has a divine, that the divine omniscient God has a bad memory? Of course not. Does it mean he has a case of amnesia? You know, I've had people say, well, you know, you confess your sin and God says, what sin? I don't remember any sin. (laughs) Please. What does it mean? Our sins and our lawless deeds, he remembers no more. It means he doesn't hold it against you anymore. And by the way, that's what we're to do with one another when we forgive people. When someone's hurt you, the Bible never says forgive and forget. I don't know where they get that in the Bible. Like it's some verse, you know, the Bible says forgive and forget. Really? Show me where. If someone breaks into your home and they rape your wife tonight, you will never ever forget that. But you can forgive that person. How do you know whether you've really forgiven a person? By the way, you remember it. If you remember it with a sense of bitterness and hatred, 
then that person is one. And some of you have been hurt by other believers and other family members. And you've let a root of bitterness get into your heart. And you've not forgiven the person. You've not released them from their debt. And that root of bitterness will not only destroy you, it will destroy many people. So when God remembers our sin no more, he no longer holds it against us. And that's the way we are to forgive each other. So David understood his salvation was freely given. He understood that his sin was forever covered, buried in the deepest sea. But David also understood that his sin was not imputed. Look now at verse 8, where he quotes the second verse from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Instead of crediting our sins to our account, the Bible teaches God credits our righteousness, his righteousness to our account. Paul will say, he made Messiah who knew no sin to be sin. There on the cross when he bore our sin in his body, he made him to be sin on our behalf so that we could become, because we weren't before, God's righteousness in Christ. Blesses the man to whom the Lord does not take his sin into account. You see that word take into account? We've already seen it in this chapter. It's translated back in verse 3 as credited. All the way through this chapter, if you use in the old New American Standard, it says reckoned. The new New American Standard says credited. All the way through this chapter, it talks about something being credited. Now, it's used positively and negatively. We've seen its positive use here in verse 3 when he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited, it was reckoned, it was imputed to his account, righteousness. On every page of the ledger of Abraham's life was written the word, God's righteousness, God's righteousness, God's righteousness. In this context, it's used in the negative sense, that God does not impute to David's account his sin. Blesses the man whose sin the Lord will not legizomai, impute, or take into account. Same word. You know, sometimes we, we talk about someone getting a clean slate. This is where we get it from, passages like this. And when you become a true believer in Jesus Christ, not only does he wipe the slate clean, he reckons to your account God's righteousness. And over the years, I've been amazed to watch what people will do to try to get a clean slate. I've watched some Roman Catholics commit acts of flagellation where they'll punish themselves physically, thinking that somehow that will merit forgiveness. I've seen people marry folks that they had had a sexual relationship with whom they should not have married. But they married them other, anyway, thinking that somehow that, that marriage would fix their sin and make up for it in God's eyes. And by the way, if you've done it, it's now the will of God for your life. I've seen people come up with huge sums of money, somehow thinking that they, they can buy their forgiveness of God. But you've not been redeemed with silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb. And there's coming a day because heaven is real and hell is real and both are forever. When there will be people in hell who would give everything they had to not have their sin counted against them. But it will be too late for them. Today is the day to be saved. 
When God ushers in the new age, it will be forever too late. Your only hope is to flee to Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Listen, David's case was hopeless. It was hopeless. It was only the mercy of God that rescued that man. And listen, your case and my case is hopeless as well. You and I have a horrible record of sin and there are things that are in the back of your mind that no one else may know in this world but God, but you know. It's a hopeless case apart from the hope that God can give you in Jesus Christ. And when you look to Him for your salvation and Him alone, He says the slate is wiped clean and righteousness is counted to you. And David writes this beautiful hymn in Psalm 32 to express that magnificent forgiveness that is freely given. Centuries later, another man would write another hymn. And he would express the same sentiments when he said, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. No other religion can say my sin is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Only Christianity, the only true religion can say that. You know that today? And if you do, let's share it this week. I think some of us have grown into a little bit of a callous lull when it comes to evangelism. And I want to tell you, when you become so self-focused and you lose your compassion for people, no one can do anything right. And you just start finding fault and picking at folks because you become so self-centered instead of other-centered. Listen, if you have found this good news, good news is not to hide, it is to share. Now, Holy Father, we thank you that our sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we need not bear it any longer. I pray today for someone who's never received that forgiveness. And as I've been preaching, the Spirit of God has been ministering to them and helping them to see that they're helpless, helping them to see that forgiveness is not earned, but it is freely given, that righteousness is imputed as a gift, a gift given to anyone who in faith will say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help someone today in childlike faith to put their confidence in the death and resurrection of Christ that they might receive this forgiveness and this new life. Those of us who have, we praise you with all of our hearts. We're here to worship today, not by the clock, but out of a great deep sense of gratitude for what you've done. And may we be obedient to the command of our Savior to go into all the world and to make converts, disciples of all peoples, beginning here in our own Jerusalem. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For a copy of today's study entitled The Salvation of David, 
Visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and look up program ROM18. You can also listen to it through the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. And of course, you can always call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin a look at the religion that God hates. Join us then as we search the scriptures. (music) 